Good morning, everyone, and welcome to St. Luke's Sunday Forum. We're thrilled to have you here, and I'm thrilled to have as my guest, John Lemire. Uh, he is uh, the executive director of the Ray Anderson Foundation. We'll unpack what that's about, what he's about. But before we uh, say welcome to him, I just want to note that the occasion is that this is St. Francis of Assisi Sunday. It is a time when we remember with great inspiration and admiration how Francis of Assisi saw God in everything and saw that everything was his relative, everything in creation and every brother and sister uh, in the human family. So it is in his spirit that we welcome John Lemire. John, welcome. Thank you, Ed. It's a joy to be with you, and Christ's blessings to you and everyone at St. Luke's. I'm, I'm excited about this conversation. Thank you, my friend. I do want to express my gratitude to Sharon Young and Sue Sherrill for uh, initially setting this up and for Ann Kramer to bring in her wonderful energy to get us together. Um, it, John Lanier is a wonderful resource for everything having to do with creation care and faith. And we're going to touch into all of that. But John, I really think that before we begin anything, um, we need to talk about the, the crisis of these fires. Um, 29 at last count, forest fires in the West Coast. That may be just in California. Um, I really do want to hear about your foundation and your theology and all of that. But let's just get into the fires immediately. What is going on and how do you understand how they came to be and why they're such a threat right now? It's, it's a tragedy for sure. And it's one of, unfortunately, many climate tragedies that, that we are experiencing right now, but it's the one that is, is putting uh, so many lives in, in danger right now, livelihoods. Uh, it is difficult to see. Certainly, we've, we've seen wildfires before, but what has become clear over the last several years is that wildfire season is unlike anything that we are used to here in the United States and, and people up and down the West Coast, not just California, not just the United States, it extends into Canada as well, are experiencing something that is not normal or that I fear might be becoming the new normal. Uh, you know, the, the scientists are, are very clear on this, that uh, Climate change is contributing to more wildfires, more extreme wildfires, and what's particularly difficult about the West Coast and why they continue to have this is that they'll go through these swings of heavy rain that results in lots of life coming to, to burst up uh, across their landscapes, and then no rain and the drought-like conditions that follow cause all of that new growth to become tender for the fires. And it doesn't take but, but one lightning strike or, or one gender reveal party gone wrong that's caused some of the ones that we've seen. And all of a sudden, you see the entire uh, landscape uh, threatened by these fires. So it is uh, an example, a, a challenging example of how climate change isn't just a threat for the future. It's something we're dealing with right now, and it's not just impacting the environment. It's impacting people. Thanks for that. Um, just unpack a little bit, John, of the arguments that we have in our culture wars 
and in our uh, life uh, in a very highly politicized time about what are the underlying causes hmm. of these forest fires? So I think to answer that, first, let's set the politics aside. Uh, what our climate is and, and how it operates, that is not a political question. It's a scientific one. And credit to the, the now generations of brilliant people who have come to understand with such detail and nuance how our climate works. And then at the specific level, this particular issue of, of forest fires. Uh, what, what we know, because the scientific community is in lockstep agreement on this, is that our climate has been warming at a global scale for decades now. And they've looked at many things that can explain this consistent warming trend. And all of them can be ruled out, except for one. And it's the obvious one. It's the fact that the combustion of fossil fuels has released greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. We're seeing a thicker atmospheric blanket because of human activity. Other things impact the climate for sure, but the only thing the scientists tell us that can explain the warming that has been observed already is what's called anthropogenic or human-caused greenhouse gases. So that's the backdrop, the big scale of this. When it comes to fires in particular, um, I, I, I like to use a, a term that uh, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe uses quite a bit. She is a climate scientist, an evangelical climate scientist, in fact, from Texas Tech. And she will refer to what's happening as global weirding. She's not the only one. Others refer to it this way as well. Not just global warming, but global weirding. Because what the scientists tell us is likely to happen is we'll see more extremes. It's not like everywhere on planet Earth is just going to get a little bit warmer and that's it. That's the average. And as you get to the average temperature increase, what you're going to see are these wide swings. You're going to see some summers that are dramatically hotter in some places and the corresponding drought conditions that can come along with that will manifest. But you'll also see heavier rains at some times. Here in Atlanta, we're very used to the fact that we get a lot of rain at some time, but it doesn't mean that we're immune from drought. You see similar things, uh, but in this case, more extreme on the West Coast. The conditions for wildfires have been present each and every year for the last several because California has gone through these swings between heavy rains and droughts. And it's not likely to stop anytime soon. Got it. So let's tag this business about fossil fuels and greenhouse gases and human participation in all of this and climate change and climate weirding. Now, just bracketing that for a second, we want to come back to that. Let's find out about your foundations in terms of your theological and values foundations, as well as your foundation of which you are the head. So tell us a little bit about how it came to be that you became such a passionate and eloquent advocate for creation care, John. Uh, I I love that I get to tell this story with you, Ed. Um, when, I, when I tell my, my personal story, my professional story, uh, it's often in a setting where I, I don't lean into the, the faith roots that I have, but 
now I have that opportunity in spades because it's truly what I do is, is truly rooted in my, my love of God and uh, my desire to be a good disciple of Christ. So the story really begins with my grandfather, Ray Anderson. Ray was a Georgia boy. He was born in West Point on the border with Alabama, um, went to Georgia Tech on a football scholarship, graduated and set off to live the American dream, climbing the corporate ladder at a textile company. And it was while he was uh, working in the textile space, in particular the, the carpet space in the late 60s, that he had his, his first big idea in life. He was on a business trip in Europe and saw for the first time carpet tile. Now up to that point in the United States, if you put carpet in a building, you were putting in what's called broadloom, these big eight foot wide sheets of carpet that would be cut to fit any room that they were in. But my grandfather saw that office spaces were beginning to change and that there was a competitive edge if carpet tile, squares of carpet that could be selectively replaced, could be moved to access the wiring underneath without ripping up the whole floor. He said, that's what's next. And he bet the farm, put every bit of his life savings up to start a company that would come to be called Interface in 1973. So he sets off living this dream of being an entrepreneur and succeeds. By 1983, the company was able to go public and the capital inflow from that uh, IPO allowed them to expand globally. So by 1994, the company was 21 years old and it was doing about $600 million a year in sales. It was global in its scope and was the world's largest carpet tile manufacturing company. But that year was important for my grandfather. He was 60 years old, maybe starting to think about what would come after he left the business. Uh, but that was a moment in his life when uh, the Holy Spirit spoke to him. At least that's what our family uh, refers to that, that moment as. And, and my grandfather, I think, acknowledged that too. There was a book that landed on his desk. An employee at Interface said, I think my boss needs to read this and left it for him on his desk. There's one reason he picked up this book and started reading it. A group of customers started asking, what is Interface doing for the environment? And Ray didn't have a good answer for his company. He was looking for inspiration and he sees this book called The Ecology of Commerce. And he decides to start flipping through it, looking for that inspiration about what his company's environmental purpose might be. Up to that point, he thought their purpose was comply with environmental law, and that's it. But he quickly realizes as he reads this book that there's so much more at stake. In the second chapter, that's what he called the, the tip of the spear in his chest when he was convicted as a plunderer of the earth. That second chapter showed him how many species worldwide were going extinct, far more than should be going extinct if humans weren't to blame. But here we are causing mass extinction of species globally. Why? Because of businesses like his because of the way that businesses operate. Extractive manufacturing companies like his are doing the most to destroy the planet. But, the book said, business and industry is the only sector large enough, well enough organized and capitalized to actually solve the problems that we have. It was a, it's similar to the, the scales falling from Paul's eyes, I feel. Uh, it was a, 
a transformative moment for my grandfather and for the rest of his life, 17 more years on God's earth, he set out to make his company, this global manufacturing company, as environmentally sustainable as possible. It was a long journey and it required the lean-in, the buy-in, the culture change of all of the people of Interface. He couldn't do it alone, but it was a journey he remained committed to. And along the way, Interface proved that when done right, environmental sustainability can be very good for the bottom line. They increased their profits because of their authentic commitment to sustainability, to figuring out how their business can do no harm. So that's my grandfather, and he passes away in 2011 and makes the decision to leave his estate to this foundation, this family foundation. Uh, and our task is to be philanthropists, to give his money away to the charitable causes that best represent what he stood for. So we're grant makers in the environmental sustainability space. And, and I'll, I'll say for a little bit later more about what our foundation does and some of the grants that we make. Uh, I'll, I'll close all of this with just my, my own personal journey. In brief, uh, I'm Roman Catholic, and my faith is such a, a huge part of, of who I am and how I live. I was uh, pleased to be able to go to Marist School here in Atlanta and thought long and hard about joining uh, the Marist Order of, of Priests. Uh, so I was feeling God's call ultimately to the married life and, and, and to be uh, a father to two amazing young children. Uh, but it's been so core to me to, to listen to God's call. And I think it's what led me to this work at the foundation. Yes, it's family. And the only way I had this opportunity is that my, my mother, my father, my aunt, and my uncle asked if I would run this foundation. Uh, my background is as a tax attorney, and it's actually translated pretty well to this work. But ultimately, at the core of what I do each and every day is, is I listen to God's call, and I remember the example of my grandfather, and I try to do good in the world. That's such an inspiring story. Thank you very much for sharing it generously. It begs the immediate question or observation question. John, you're not um, your typical president of a foundation sitting in a corner office doling out grants. You are a person from what little I know of you and what little I've read of yours. You are a person of great passion and commitment. Um, I want you, when you respond to this question, to, to talk about where everybody can find the blogs that I've dipped into. But, you, but you're a person who really does see the divine in nature and that by caring for the planet, we care for one another, and that the lives of people who are poor are at stake because there is this reality of eco-justice, and one of the ways of caring for our brothers and sisters who are the least of these or the most vulnerable is to make sure that we're caring for this common planet we inhabit. So now, before we even kind of get back into your foundation and talk about I mean, we are, everybody who's watching, we are gonna talk about what all of us can do. John has some great plans about that. But I just simply wanna dip in right now to your own personal passion, spirituality, and theology. For me, uh, creation care fits within the 
more generalized theological outlook that I have. Uh, one that is, uh, as I said, Roman Catholic, but fundamentally Christian. That's in my, my mother is Presbyterian. My aunt and uncle are Baptists. It's, it's my father and I who, who are Catholic in our family. I have come to see the value of just an authentic Christian theology. And what that Christian faith teaches me is that God loves us. God sent Christ to earth to be the salvation of humanity. Uh, and that God's presence can be revealed to us as, as individuals through scripture, through prayer, also through experiences in serving others and experiences in the natural world. God reveals himself to us. Creation care is so critical to my spirituality because I see how many people are being and will be impacted by a degraded environment. And I'd like to think that humans aren't capable of destroying God's creation at scale, but the evidence appears to be otherwise. We are at fault for so much of this, not because we have set out to destroy God's creation. Oftentimes, these are unintended consequences from what we've done, but we have to acknowledge them. Creation care ultimately sits at this nexus between the natural world and humans. You know, why, why does creation care matter? I actually think there's, there's three reasons uh, that I want to unpack slightly with you, Ed. But the first one is what you were talking about in, in leading up to this question. It's that by caring for the natural world, we can care for other people. And you see that in a whole host of ways. Within sustainability, you have people working on reduced food waste. Why? Well, often they're trying to get that food that's wasted to the people who are most hungry. So that's an example of the, the two sides of the coin between environment and people. When you look at issues of climate change, it is frequently the people who are least responsible for contributing to the problem. People who are of, of lesser means, who aren't living uh, what are called high carbon footprint lifestyles, they are the ones who are going to suffer most from the challenges that are coming. Whether you live in coastal communities and it's sea level rise, or you live here in Atlanta and the, the risk of drought with our limited water supply and uh, heat wave. It's going to be the least advantageous among us who suffer. When you look at air quality, it's frequently the people in the poorest communities. Those communities are where the polluters tend to cite their polluting plants. Why? Because property values are lower. The least among us suffer the greatest because of environmental harms. And it has led to a term called environmental justice. Now that's a secular term, but it shouldn't just be a secular term. Environmental justice should be one of the core principles of being a good Christian, being aware of the need for environmental justice and how we can do as much as possible to right the wrongs that are caused amongst the poorest communities that we have as a result of environmental degradation that we, that we experience. So that's the, the first principle and, and likely the most one of, of why creation care matters. So I'm curious about the other two. Uh, can you go ahead and, and sure. catch those out and we, we may go deep into them now or come back to them? Sure. So the second one is, I think, uh, 
what is perhaps most approachable for us as Christians, that the easy one, the layup that we can feel. And it's, it's caring for creation is an opportunity to worship. Uh, we, as Christians, I, I suppose I should speak for myself, I feel God's presence the most strongly when I'm deep in the woods of uh, the mountains of North Georgia. I, I feel God there. I, my prayers are clearer and crisper. I wonder and marvel at God's creation in those moments. So caring for creation is an opportunity to worship. And, and it can be done if you're tending a garden or you're climbing a mountain. It doesn't matter. You find God there. Uh, just like you can read scripture and find God. You can take a walk in the woods and you can find God. So worship is the second one, and not in a hierarchical way, but it's one of the ones along with uh, service of our, our brothers and sisters. The third one is perhaps the least approachable. I believe that through creation care, we learn, we understand more about how God designed the world and critically, how God wants us to live in the world. If I'm out walking in that same uh, forest, yes, I'm feeling God's presence, but I'm also seeing perhaps thousands of different species all living in harmony together. They want different things, different resources that their ecosystem has to offer. Sure, there's some competition that goes on, but ultimately the principles of how ecosystems work, how the natural world works, is that different species collaborate. They all create conditions conducive to life. That's borrowing a term from an inspiration of mine, Janine Benyus. So when we have this authentic love of the natural world and a desire to protect it, we can't help but learn these hidden truths about how I believe humans are called to live on earth. We can learn how nature designs communities and perhaps design our own communities imitating nature in better ways that create more just outcomes for those who deserve it. Beautiful. My heart and my thinking are resonating so uh, vibrationally with you right now uh, because uh, I, uh, well, the poets and our own experience teach us that uh, nature is alive. Elizabeth Barrett Browning says, every bush is aflame with God, not just the burning bush in Moses. And to the degree that we can stop and attend to every plant, everything being aflame with the divinity of God, we can learn so much. And Mary Oliver talks about that is her form of prayer is to go out, God bless her before she died, um, go out and pay attention to a bird, to a fish, to the ocean. I'm so <laughs> welcoming of those three things you've just yeah. said. And the, um, I recently, pardon me, but I, I'm so excited about the burning bush story. Mm -hmm. I, I just preached it again for the millionth time. And it really came clear to, became clear to me that every time God beckons to us, through nature, it is not only to have a worship experience, but it is to have all three of what you just talked about. It is to learn and to be sent to liberate those who are enslaved. Mm -hmm. And I just love the fact that you brought those three things together. 
so beautifully. Thanks, John. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I think it's deeply personal as well. There's that's an aspect of all three. It gives us a chance to connect in a meaningful way to our faith. Even if you just think about that that worship component, I feel like most everyone has one special place in their mind where they know that they can find God in the in the natural world. For me, it's those woods that I mentioned. I'd, I'd love to know, Ed, where, when you think about being outside, is there a special place that your mind goes to? Oh, absolutely. Well, my story is hallmarked by a mystical experience I had when I was five in a pine grove ah. in South Georgia mm -hmm. um, between the First Baptist Church of the Baptist Church where my father was pastor and the pastorium where we lived. And I was an only child until I was seven and when my little brother was born. And I had this, God came to me and in the inaudible voice spoke to me. So um, anytime I'm in forests, um, it, it happens for me because I'm just so deeply, profoundly open to what I've always intuited, which science now tells us, is that there is this ongoing com conversation going on between trees and that when we walk in them, the minerals that contain part of the conversation across crown to crown, as well as the fungi and the roots underneath us, that, which, that communicate, and, and we are bathing in those minerals. And you know, the whole Japanese thing of forest bathing is very important to me. But the one place right now, John, for me, is Pando, which is 100 and, it's a 106 acre root ball in Southern Utah of quaking Aspen that in 1968 was discovered to be one plant, not this 57,000 different tree trunks. And it is a perfect iconic symbol for me of what St. Paul is talking about in terms of the body of Christ, mm -hmm. that we all function interdependently of one another and interwovenly in the whole Thich Nhat Hanh uh, concept of interbeing, that we are one another. So yeah, that's what it is for me. Uh, but I want to get back to you. Um, <laughs> so John, uh, you, you just raised the issue of the personal. Now I'm kind of shifting in my thinking and my questions um, to talk about solutions, because we uh, are all responsible uh, for this very fragile planet. Um, that we've unfortunately thought was, you know, could withstand anything. Um, and we need to be really, really careful. You know, so many species we are losing over and over and over again, and these forest fires, and oh, my heart breaks every time something in the Arctic, you know, breaks off another 57 acre piece of ice breaks off. I mean, we are responsible for that. I want to talk about both the personal level and also the corporate or partnership level, um, because you're going to talk about a program that mm -hmm. that that we won't really want to hear. Before we get to that that program, um, please uh, tell us about your own personal. Um, it there there spiritual practices I know having to do with what you eat, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Yeah. I, I think I want to frame both the, the, the smaller scale, more personal, what can we do, and the larger scale systems level or corporate level, uh, what needs to happen, what, what solution should come. Both of those I want to frame 
within the broader context of, of climate change being what I consider the issue. You know, creation care does not equal climate change. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of overlap, but as Christians, we're called, I believe, to solve many environmental challenges. There are lots of them, whether it's clean water, whether it's food access, whether it's biodiversity loss. There's, I could, I could, la I could just give you a list of dozens of different things that fit within environmentalism. But to me, climate change is the big one because it's the one, if we get it wrong, it doesn't really matter how many other we get right. We will see very, very scary outcomes if there's runaway climate change, not now, not next decade, but maybe we're starting to see some really scary things by the end of the century when my, my son will turn 84 and my daughter will turn 82. So this, and that's rooted in what scientists are, are telling us. So climate to me is, is what I want to focus on, on both the personal and, and the, the, the system scale. But I don't want that to discourage anyone who feels their personal calling to work on issues of, of plastic pollution or to, to focus on clean water or anything else. Those issues haven't gone away. So within climate, on the smaller scale at the personal level, there's a, a first step that is uh, often skipped over by people who decide they want to start caring about this, and it's that you have to educate yourself, and that's, uh, that's so foundational. Um, I think there's value in understanding the basics of climate science. Why does carbon dioxide trap heat, but oxygen doesn't? Well, the scientists have good answers for that. I won't spend our time on it here, but I've learned that and so many other things about how our climate works and therefore why we're so sure that carbon emissions are the main thing to be concerned about. When you do the work of educating yourself on the issue of climate, you begin to see that almost everything that we do has an impact. It's tiny you scale all of those together and humanity has a significant impact. So personal action, it matters in the way that every good deed that we as people do matters. If I am able to share a bite of food with somebody hungry on the side of, of the street, have I made a difference on global hunger? Well, no, but but we're still called to that because if everybody did it, just imagine if everybody did it. The same mindset goes with climate. Can I turn my lights off, replace them with uh, more energy efficient options? Those are some of the, the easy things and many of them will save you household income. Of course you should do that. Can I look at my diet and eat lower down on the food chain in a way that reduces the carbon footprint associated with Whatever I've eaten and how it got to my plate, diet ends up being something that you can make a difference in. Every single thing that you buy makes a difference because everything that is made and manufactured that we consume has its own carbon footprint. If I buy something that puts less carbon into the atmosphere to make it than the alternative, I have made a difference on this. How much I fly, I'm not going to flight shame anybody here, but you've seen that in the climate space. Um, just being mindful of when we get on an airplane, there's an impact. When we choose our next car is it more fuel efficient than the alternative that makes a difference 
each and every day, there are literally hundreds of decision points where you can make that tiniest little difference. And it's about understanding how much more there is we can be doing. It's not one or two things. So that to me is how I've guided it. And it's a learning process. So now at home, we compost with compost now. I eat a vegetarian diet. I could do even better. I still eat cheese. Cheese has a carbon footprint, but I haven't gotten to that point yet. For each person, it's about what can you do today? What works with your lifestyle? Uh, what do you feel called to? All of these sorts of things, just the continual improvement that comes along with understanding an issue as significant and, and complex as climate change. Thanks, John. Precisely what I needed and wanted to hear from you. Um, before we go to the corporate or the macro, um, is there a list available for people to look to do their own personal audit, both for their own personal choices and their household choices? There's a number of resources, but my favorite, I'm, I'm very biased in this respect, is a resource called Project Drawdown. Uh, our foundation supported this organization and what I'm about to tell you about and, and are still inspired by it today. I know we'll spend a, a little bit of time talking about something our foundation is, is doing in this drawdown space. But first, Project Drawdown. They're a nonprofit that asked a simple question uh, a number of years ago. They asked... Uh, what things that humanity is already doing, if they scaled, would actually do the most to reverse global warming? It's an apples to apples comparison that they wanted to create. Which is better, LED lighting or electric vehicles or, or afforestation, planting more trees or educating girls in the developing world, which can help reduce birth rates, fewer people on earth through choice of these women who are more empowered economically, that is, a climate benefit, but it also means that young women are educated, which has its own merit. They looked at all of these different things that, if done, would help reverse global warming. And then they had a list of the, the 100 most substantive solutions. So I would suggest anybody interested in this, go to drawdown.org and look at their list of solutions. Uh, drawdown is a term that they coined and I, I want to spend a moment on this because I think it's the best way we can think about success in this space. Many people who are listening to this have, have probably heard about two degrees Celsius when then you hear about climate change. What in the heck is that? I mean, we don't even use Celsius, but that's our climate goal. Two degrees what? Well, it turns out the scientists are saying we need to keep the average global increase in temperature to no more than two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures. I don't even know what pre-industrial temperatures were, and two degrees doesn't sound that big of a deal. It's a bad goal, in other words. It's, an, it's a scientifically derived goal. It's important for that respect, but it doesn't allow us to connect to it. Drawdown is a better climate goal that this organization coined. Drawdown is the point in time where greenhouse gases in the atmosphere don't keep going up, they start going down. When we start drawing down greenhouse gases on the, out of the atmosphere, the planet will begin to cool. That's what we're trying to do. And, and this organization has done more than any other I know to help people understand just how many solutions we really do have at our disposal. Thank you very much. Um, so Drawdown is also a good way to talk about the corporate level as well, right? So we're talking about some personal decisions. Um, 
And all of us have this responsibility mm -hmm. to learn and then to act. And we have a thing about learning, praying and acting in community. Uh, and, and when it comes to the issue of climate change, all of us have this responsibility to learn, pray and act about that. Let's talk about the community, faith communities coming together, corporate executives and their boards making some decisions. Talk to us about, because that's, that's your arena as well, mm -hmm. brother. Absolutely. Um, talk to us about that now. Sure. And, and I, this is where I think I'll spend some time talking about uh, our, one of our newest initiatives that the foundation supports. So uh, the importance of this is perhaps obvious, but I'm still going to state the obvious. If I made a commitment in my personal life to be carbon neutral, and if Coca-Cola makes the commitment to be carbon neutral, not picking on Coca-Cola, just a large company that we all know, we've made the same commitment. One matters a lot more because of the sheer size of their carbon footprint as a company and mine as an individual. If they go carbon neutral, that's a heck of a lot more important than me going carbon neutral. And this is true of at any scale where you look and say, if we as an organization can come together with people making up that organization that, that value action on climate, so much more can happen. So it's, it's systems thinking, it's, it's talking about climate solutions at scale. Well, the scale that interested our foundation the most was the scale of the state of Georgia. So uh, our foundation is here, it's where our connections are. We are blessed to have many resources, but they're not at the scope that many national funders have. We asked, where can we make a difference? And we felt like here in the state of Georgia is where we can do the most on climate. So we were inspired by Project Drawdown to ask the same question about the state of Georgia. What would it look like? What are the solutions that can get us there for Georgia to become carbon neutral and then carbon sequestering. What if Georgia, because of everything we did, meant less carbon was in the atmosphere each year? Well, to answer that question, you have to start with research. You have to look at what solutions have the greatest potential. You have to do that apples to apples comparison. So our foundation funded Georgia Tech, the University of Georgia, and Emory University, and they've pulled in other partners as well to look at the solutionscape for climate in Georgia, to understand which solutions could do the most good. So Drawdown Georgia is the name of this initiative that has started with this research that comes out at the end of, of this month of October. That research shows 20 high impact solutions that in Georgia can get us far down the path towards carbon neutrality. And when you look at this list, you'll see some of the things that individuals can make a difference on. Reduced food waste is one of those, but you realize that many of them will require larger organizations to adopt them. Things like rooftop solar or utility scale solar, two separate solutions within the 20, those will scale most rapidly the bigger the building we have to put them on or the larger the field that we're able to site solar in. It usually requires resources at a scale beyond what individuals can do. So there's a responsibility that we as individuals have to do the small things, but there's 
also the responsibility that we have to come together in community and ask either our own organizations or those that we can influence to do their part because their part is so much bigger. And when we start to see this shift happen at scale, I think what will happen is that climate will no longer be political because it will just be, of course, we're all working on this together. Why wouldn't we be? And that we'll find there are so many co-benefits because you don't just work on scaling these solutions to reverse global warming. You want to put clean energy on the grid because it helps air quality, because long-term it will be a cheaper form of energy. So the poorest among us hopefully will benefit from lower energy prices. And on and on and on down the list of co-benefits of, of advancing equity and solving other environmental problems and creating economic development opportunities through solving for climate here in Georgia. So your earlier story about your grandfather, I think is important to recall here. Let's invoke the fact that he made a very important decision about his business when he was 60 that actually was very lucrative for him and for his business to be careful about the creation. So is that part of Drawdown Georgia? is to tell these what I call globally significant corporations that are headquartered here, this is going to be to your fiscal benefit to do this. Absolutely. Um, the, the, again, it starts with research. This is not just a research project. This is a, a movement building project, but the researchers are projecting the financial considerations that scaling these solutions entails. What's the upfront cost? What are the lifetime benefits? What's the payback period on things like rooftop solar? All of these sorts of financial considerations. And when you have a, a slightly longer uh, investment horizon, then almost every one of these pays for itself. Uh, if you're looking for a quick payback, that's not often the case. Um, but, but the financial case makes itself when you imagine what needs to happen over the next decade or, or a couple of decades. The, it's, it's a smarter way, and you're right to, to reference my grandfather. He has been one of our North Stars as we've conceived of this whole thing. The example he left and the people of Interface continue to show today uh, of, of, uh, of sustainability and climate action being so right and so smart, a better way to a bigger profit, it's baked into everything that we're doing with Drawdown Georgia. I mean, that's the thing about, this is the thing about God's creation. We're so interlocked with one another that what is good for one is really good for everybody. And it is a lie to think that we are a mechanistic group of gears and switches and parts that are really not organically enfolded into one another's life so that when we take care of the planet, we are also taking care of our brothers and sisters who are most vulnerable, and we're taking care of ourselves. Why Absolutely. we can't get in, get that into our heads uh, befuddles me. It, no, it's so interesting you say that. Uh, you'd mentioned earlier uh, my blog. It's called Ecocentricity, and, and it's all about exploring uh, sustainability in its many forms, though I've, I've written about creation care and, and will continue to do so going forwards. But my most recent blog actually explored an economic um, 
paradox called the prisoner's dilemma. You may be familiar with it and others uh, in, in the, um, at St. Luke's may be familiar with it, um, but it, it's, it's purely economic theory, but when it gets applied to environmental issues, you realize that if people ask the question, what's in it for me, they often end up with a less good outcome than if they ask the question, what's in it for us? Because collective action, looking out for the benefits of the whole, very often results in more goodness for the whole than if we're all just trying to protect ourselves or look out for our own self-interest. Uh, so if, if anybody listening, um, this is, it's, it's a few weeks ago now that, that I have written this blog, but you can look back for um, the Prisoner's Dilemma blog that I wrote on ecocentricity. You can go to the Ray C. Anderson Foundation's website, just Google that, and I'd be honored for, for anyone to follow along with my writing. It's one of the most enjoyable things I get to do. I'm very, very excited about doing that. You know, before we, we, before we leave um, Drawdown, I'm, I'm really, really curious. Is there by any chance a part of the strategy of Drawdown that there's a list of super mega corporations that they're simply going to one by one for a conversion process uh, to this vision? Yes, and it's being led not by our foundation directly, but by uh, one of our closest partners. So um, we want Drawdown Georgia to, I had called it trying to build a movement. This is not an initiative of the Ray C. Anderson Foundation. We're starting it, but the only way that the, the state of Georgia achieves carbon neutrality is if this idea gets picked up by others if others take the lead on it and we're thrilled that we already have partners who say this is a good idea we want to help one of our other key partners uh, at the foundation is georgia tech that's where ray went he loved his alma mater and it's been a natural fit for us to fund something called the ray c anderson center for sustainable business it's at the the sheller college of business at georgia tech they are going to be the ones convening sustainability professionals from the large uh, Georgia-based or at least um, companies with a significant presence in Georgia, but Georgia companies, bringing them together. They already have an advisory council to create this network where the big companies can come and learn from each other, but they're going to be leveraging that to hopefully get Drawdown Georgia adopted by the business community. And that to me is the greatest chance that we have to see this, this kernel of an idea scale, is if, if you have these big companies all saying, yes, climate matters, we should be focusing on solutions, what better place to start than here at home? If they adopt Drawdown Georgia, use the science that we uh, have, have helped this research that we've helped fund, but also then get creative about finding how to scale solutions where they can do the most good. Well, then we can actually start making some of that progress at scale that I keep talking about. And one more curiosity question that I have before we wrap it up. Um, I, I'm assuming that this uh, incorporates the sustainability officers of all the different municipalities and counties of Georgia. Can you speak to that as well? So much of what needs to happen will um, ultimately be driven by our cities, whether it's small cities across Georgia, all the way up to this, this big one uh, that, that, I'm, that we're sitting in right now. 
So the, these solutions um, are going to be appealing, as I've said, to, to individuals, to corporations, but also to governments as well. There's an opportunity for the research to inform uh, how sustainability professionals at various cities can uh, improve their, their uh, performances. There are cities across the state of Georgia, Atlanta is one, Athens is another, and Savannah as well, that have made 100% clean energy commitments. And that by 2035, I think is, is the common date, they want to be powered entirely by renewable energy. Well, that dovetails perfectly with Drawdown Georgia, given the, the impact that the electricity sector has on this. So my hope is that uh, the research helps them, but more importantly, that they find as Drawdown Georgia becomes known, becomes more of that movement, that they find their jobs get easier yeah. to to do the things that they want to because everybody all of a sudden starts caring about climate and caring about it where they live. Yes, 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 yes. Man, my soul is saying amen to you. <laughs> Thank so, you. Thank you. Throughout this conversation. It's really, now, before we say goodbye to one another, you use the word that I need to know what it means. You use the word carbon sequestering. What in the world is that? Carbon sequestration or something that is carbon sequestering is it's the it's where we need to get to at scale. So uh, there's two ways that we can reverse global warming. We can either stop carbon from going up, which is don't burn so many fossil fuels, right. or we can pull it back down. And by we, I mean nature. Right. So when you talk about natural sinks, things like planting more forests or regenerative agriculture, where we can actually pull carbon down and store it in the soils of our agriculture land. Well, those, the, the, the trees in our soils can be carbon sequestering. But right now, the good that they're doing for us is outweighed by all the carbon we keep putting up. Eventually, we can get to a point where we put less carbon into the atmosphere and we help nature pull more of it down. Got and the it. moment we're pulling more down than we're putting up, yep. the moment we're carbon sequestering as a state. And if the planet gets there, then we begin to cool. Very good. Now, one other last uh, question about this. Um, you called us to educate ourselves. What's your first book or first website or first whatever to go to to start this educational process? So uh, it depends on your format of, of learning and what you prefer. We don't all learn the same. So um, there's, uh, I mentioned Dr. Catherine Hayhoe at Texas Tech, and she does these great short videos that explore all these different aspects of, uh, of climate science, why we're sure, what matters, things like that. And those are the global weirding uh, YouTube videos that you can find. So if you just search for Catherine Hayhoe, her last name is H-A-Y-H-O-E, uh, and global weirding, you can find this treasure trove of, of phenomenal videos. Um, Project Drawdown will bring solutions to life. So I, I urge people to uh, go to their website. Um, I know that this is approaching the, the, where it's gotten political, but again, this is not a political issue. It's a scientific issue. And the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change hosted by the United Nations, is the best science that we have. And they have some uh, 
tremendous uh, distillations of climate science. Uh, so I urge people to go find the IPCC's website and, re and review the executive summaries that they've created around the climate science. So if you do those, uh, those last two things that I mentioned, go to Project Drawdown to learn about solutions and go to the IPCC to learn about the science. If you got the solutions and the science nailed, then you are ready to go on climate action. You are in gear. Listen, Thanks. my friend, we have to, our time has run out and I am so grateful for you, uh, for your passion, for your uh, teaching and for this conversation. Now, I'm not a scientist. Are there questions I didn't ask that I really look stupid because I didn't ask them? No, no, far from. Uh, this has been such a rich and rewarding conversation and, and I return your gratitude tenfold. This is, um, I've enjoyed every bit of this and, and I'm honored to be able to, to speak with you and, and to uh, St. Luke's. My gratitude to everyone there as well. There's one perhaps last point that I want to be ringing in the ears of the people of St. Luke's. And I think it dovetails so nicely with what we're called to as Christians. When people think about climate change or the environmental challenges that we have, and this is true of our social challenges as well, it's easy to become overwhelmed, to be in despair about the scope of what we're trying to do and the sense that what we do can't possibly matter in the scope of these massive challenges. But you cannot lean into that. And that cannot be what you tell people when you advocate for change. You can't try to change people through scaring them. I believe the better way is to inspire people, to give them a vision for a better future, uh, a more just future, to, to lean into this hopeful message that, that climate action offers us, a hopeful message that creation care offers us, and to show people that your love of God, your love of God's creation, gives you more opportunity and gives you a richer life, not less. We always have to have that in mind. John Lanier, you are my newest best friend. Ah, likewise, Ed. So grateful for you. Thank you for this time. You've really, really illuminated our lives. And uh, can we keep can can we keep this going, John? Of course, I'll look forward to any conversation like this in the future with, with just you or with the entire congregation. Uh, hopefully, this virus gets under control and we have a vaccine soon so that we can do this in person. Amen. Thank you very much. And thank, thank every one of you for uh, being with us today. Uh, stay with us. Uh, we promise, we aim, uh, we aspire to have this kind of conversation about so many of the issues so that we can bring um, and experience uh, God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you. Amen.